0: Hello, this is WVEW-LP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live at wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, streaming at noon on Sundays. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter. And Chris, go ahead.
1: Hi, Henry. Um, Good morning. And um, I think... Really happy to be here today and an important topic that I think we can't talk enough about. Um, We're going to talk about violence, patriarchy, and capitalism and the um, kind of intertwining of that. And today's show, we're going to be focusing on the relationship between capitalism, patriarchy, and violence, and some of the different lenses that um, we can use to look at patriarchy. We'll also delve into some present-day manifestations of patriarchy and capitalism and the relationship of them. And we'll also take a look at um, how these patterns of oppression are reproduced uh, specifically as teachers in our schools and how we can oppose this.
0: Great. Um, so we're going to start with just a quick introduction song. Uh, some of you might have heard, heard of this song. It's um, Un violador en tu camino, which is essentially means uh, a rapist on your street, which is a pretty intense title. And um, this song became popularized, I would say, within the last year because there were a series of protests throughout Latin America where women were fed up with sexual violence and gathering in large numbers to resist and protest in the streets. And this song was kind of their their rallying cry against um, male patriarchal violence. So, Chris, do you have that queued up? Let's listen to that song for a little bit.
2: Be <laughs>
1: powerful the video with uh, thousands and thousands of women in chile um marching in front of looks like the presidential palace um
0: yeah and i've got some of the english english translation here so i think i'll just read a few of the lyrics if that's all right um sure. uh, patriarchy is the judge who judges us because of being born and our punishment is the violence you don't see it's femicide, impunity for my killer, it's the disappearance, it's the rape and it wasn't my fault nor where I was nor how I was dressed. You were the rapist, you are the rapist. They are the judges, the police, the state, the president. The oppressive state is a male rapist. The oppressive state is a male rapist. You were the rapist, you are the rapist. Sleep peacefully innocent girl without worrying about the bandit. Your sweet and smiling policeman lover it keeps vigil while you sleep. You are the rapist, etc. So some fairly powerful lyrics of resistance.
1: And we see it all over the world. Um, I mean, I know that in the news again, unfortunately is the, what's happening in Canada to native women being disappeared. And certainly in this country, um, all over Africa, Asia, it's a, it's something that I'm, I'm glad we're just beginning to talk, not glad that we're just beginning. I'm glad that we are talking about it today and we will talk about it many more times.
0: Right. And police violence against women, there's a, there's a huge, um, which isn't to say all police officers obviously are violent, uh, male police officers are violent against their partners. Um, it's just that we know that the, the rate is, is higher than the, the average um, for violence against women among police officers. And we had evidence of that even in local, locally in Brattleboro, there's a police officer being violent to their partner and was let go from the police force. So And that happened in the last month or two.
1: And we certainly know that, um, rape and violence against women is a tactic of war and has been for centuries. And, um, it's also incredibly prevalent in our armed forces, um, that women who are in the armed forces facing that and the partners of, of men in armed that are in armed forces facing that as well. And we also see it, it's been in the news, um, Recently, even today, uh, the selection of the first—or that—not the first, the second v- female VP candidate, the first of color, um, we saw in the news. Um, Alexander, Alexandria, um, Cortez, talking about what happened to her on the Capitol steps and her comments, which were incredibly powerful, back to her colleagues about that, um, and then. Today, the president, marking the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave the women women the right to vote, um, he granted a pardon to uh, Susan B. Anthony, for who was arrested in 1872 for violating a law that she said that she only men could vote, and she voted, um, and she was ordered to pay a $100 fine and court cost, which she refused to pay. Um, it's also controversial because she refused to do that, and she Many speculate she wouldn't want a pardon, in particular from this president, but she wouldn't want a pardon from the government. She was very proud of what she did in, in breaking the law and doing what she felt was right.
0: Yeah, and I think um, you wanted to, Chris, speak about um, one of her contemporaries, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who's a, a lesser known suffragist, but um, who had her own story that was a little bit different than Susan B. Anthony. And so we're going to segue a little bit to, do you want to tell us a little bit about her and um, what she did?
1: Yeah, she was kind of dropped from history, but she was very much a, a equal partner and a younger partner of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the women's suffrage movement. And she had a split from Susan B. Anthony, who went on to become famous and known for her work. But uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage um, was very much a radical and very much um, one of the originators of this was Susan B. Anthony. They split over... Um, The role of the church in women's oppression, and Susan B. Anthony wanted to say that um, they were doing God's will by getting the vote for women, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage proposed that um, the church has historically uh, and systematically been part of the oppression of women, and Susan B. Anthony thought that that wouldn't play well to the general public, and she shied away from that, And, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage very much embraced that and said, it's a fact that that's um, uh, the church has been very much responsible in part for what happens to women um, throughout the world. And in fact, um, the church, as she goes on to say, appealed to a barbaric conception that declared women to have been made from men, that women are first in the sin and commanded to be under obedience to men. Um, this is a quote from her, holding it as chief tenet a belief in the inherent wickedness of women, the originator of sin and its sequence, the sacrifice of a God becoming necessary. The church has treated her as alone under a curse for whose enforcement has declared itself the divine instrument. So, women's degradation under men dating back to the earliest um, writings of church history, and that very much split her from Susan B. Anthony, and so. Um, very, very important in the getting women's suffrage, but also advocating for uh, women's rights in general. Um, And kind of a forgotten kind of figure in this is Matilda Jocelyn Gage.
0: Yeah. And also Gage did some research um, from the stuff that you found about her in terms of uh, the Iroquois nation, which is right down the road from where we are present, presently in um, Northern New York, present day Northern New York. And um, she and this ties into kind of our our connection we want to make today between patriarchy and capitalism. And she observed um, some of the behavior within the Iroquois Confederacy, and that women participated in all major decision making. They had power to veto any act of war, um, and women selected the chiefs for the society. A man only served as a leader if nominated by women, and women could call for his removal, for which there was no appeal. Uh, women could disqualify disqualify or remove a chief from office if he was found guilty of any one of the three behaviors, murder, theft, or sexual assault. Um, and so it's interesting. And that, and when this happened, when early European Americans saw women at the table, especially negotiating table for treaties, they would often ask that women from the Iroquois Confederacy be kept away because it, it, it went against the kind of early capitalist patriarchy that was um, assuming control, on these shores and the iroquois were confusing to the europeans um particularly in the way they ran their economy and the role the powerful role that women played uh in the iroquois confederacy in terms of uh, the 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 authority they exerted over that those communities
1: yeah it's it's um i think the narrative that maybe um lots of people have including my students that this is um somewhat inherent in men and in the world that men do these things men are more aggressive and bold and in charge. And um, I mean, we have a long history in this land that we occupy um, of that not being the case. Um, and just that example of the Iroquois, but in fact, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, but um, many native um, groups around our country, the same kind of practice of women being completely and fully involved in, in every aspect of leadership and control in resources. Um, and so that the, the clarifying piece being that those were non-capitalist um, societies versus the Europeans who were a, a capitalist society as they came over.
0: Yeah. And I I want to digress slightly just because I earlier mentioned the, the rate of police violence um, in the homes. I'm sorry for taking us a, a straight digression, but I did want to, um, because I mentioned the, and some of the figures from a, a recent article um, on a, a resource called fatherly.com, which is quoting other academic sources that put um, the police brutality in their own homes against their, um, in terms of domestic violence is 15 times the rate of the general population. So, wow. How can we have um, uh, these kind of patriarchal police forces so called policing domestic violence the contradiction there when they themselves are perpetrators at such high rates um, of domestic violence themselves It uh, kind of begs the question how can that happen? so I just wanted to um, come back to that because I did mention it and didn't have the the stats initially
1: great yeah. um, I, so I think we're gonna before we um, jump into a song break or after we jump into song break, we're going to have an interview with a PhD candidate, um, Anna Mulaney, who is also um, an Indigo Radio host and a teacher in the Spark Teacher Education Program, among many other things, and works at the uh, Women's Freedom Center. But first, we're going to take a quick break and play Talking About Revolution by Tracy Chapman. <laughs>
2: Don't you know, we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines. Around um, waver promotion, don't you know? Talking about a
1: revolution we are here with Anna Mullaney. Uh, well Anna, why don't I uh let you introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit about um, the work you do in your PhD studies.
3: Yeah, sure. So I am in my, I'm entering my fourth year at UMass Amherst in the public health program. And I'm a doctoral student. And I'm also minoring in the economics department, which is a little unusual for a doctoral program. But um, with the program I'm in, we can minor in something. So I have a foot in the public health department and a foot in the economics department, and my work is really focused around rural poverty and violence against women. Mm. And prior to starting my PhD, I had spent six years working at the Women's Freedom Center, which is the local domestic and sexual violence organization in Wyndham County, so in this area.
1: And what capacity or what kinds of work did you do with the Women's Freedom Center?
3: I did... So all of us at the Freedom Center do the general crisis work. So I did the crisis work, meaning answering the hotline, talking with survivors, doing anything from going up to the hospital for a sexual assault to doing paperwork for a restraining order. Uh, and then I... Also was the youth advocate, which I did uh, workshops and small classes throughout the Wyndham County schools, mostly in, I would say, 7th and 8th in high school. And then I also did workshops on the college level. And they were all around uh, talking about healthy relationships and gender uh, and violence and everything in that realm. Okay, well.
0: Um, if you don't mind, I think we're going to um, ask you a few questions today. We're doing a sh- our show today about um, patriarchy um, and violence against women and capitalism, kind of the interface of those three things. And so we want to start off by asking you a question. Um, um, as a Dr. Cynthia Arruzzo, who, who I think you probably may know, um, she puts forward that there are different lenses um, from which to look at this. Um, particularly, uh, one says that capitalism and patriarchy are intimately connected. Another is that patriarchy and capitalism are separate issues. Um, or that capitalism actually is indifferent to patriarchy and has in fact helped women um, in developed countries succeed in advance from where they were before. And I just, we just wanted to know what your take is on those different narrative narrative um, lenses um, and, and how to, one could analyze the world um, in that regard.
3: Yeah, so that's a good summary of what is often called the theoretical differences that have taken place and especially, um, they're often associated with the different approaches during the, the women's lib movement. Uh, I mean, you know, I definitely wouldn't agree with I think the second and third one that you said around, um, thinking that capitalism can help women. It, that's interesting too, because that statement also assumes capitalism had nothing to do with the conditions in those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that, colonialism and the systematic underdevelopment that created poverty was right at the advent of capitalism. Uh, I think that the the dominant narratives that we have that really arose that we still see today is is not always intimately connecting patriarchy and capitalism, and it doesn't um, put patriarchy in a historical context. And that I think that's the mistake that is made. um, And that one of that, I think that really lends itself um, to the fact that we are so taught that the economic system is separate from other spheres of life. And that really my understanding of capitalism or any other economic system is that it's not only an economic system, but it's also a social and political system. And so patriarchy is not outside of this. And, and when we do think of patriarchy outside of it, that then goes down a way of thinking that leads to inherent male violence. Um, It says that men throughout history need to control women, um, which is historically inaccurate. Um, But that is one of the the dominant narratives. And, it also um, then, when we have something like that, it also then leads to what the solutions and strategies are. And so the solutions with that kind of thinking, the political mobilizing comes around um, just dismantling, like women's liberation is tied up with just dismantling patriarchy. And that misogyny um, and the, the failures of men need to be fixed by educating or disciplining men um, and so i think that it's a, it really important to think about the way that we understand it really also leads to then what we're going to do about it and that's really important i think for this discussion
0: all right thanks anna um... Did you want to speak a little bit more, since it sounds like you agree with the first part of her analysis in terms of uh, the lens that she's using? In other words, it it sounds like you do agree that patriarchy and capitalism do have an intimate connection. Do you want to discuss that, talk about that a little bit more? Like, Where do you see that interface happening and, and what does that look like a bit?
3: Yeah. So I think that one of the things I want to say about that is that it's important to say that uh, patriarchy is not unique to capitalism and that it really predates it. Uh, and that what we don't wanna get into when we say that is then the thinking of, oh, well then it's always been this way um, mm. because that is not true. Um, but we, it is really important to understand it in a historical context. And then what I think is essential is then to understand patriarchy in its capitalist form. Um, But when we think about the historical or we understand the historical roots of patriarchy, they're really linked, uh, from my understanding, to the development of class society, um, a class-structured society and the transition to agricultural communities that um, change from the more communal living or what people sometimes refer to as primitive communism um, and nomadic existence. And so this then begs the question of, what is it about our relationships to each other that are influenced and impacted by the way that we get our needs met, the way that we survive? And that what we do know is that pre-capitalism, much of the evidence indicates that women were tied to their reproductive role, which linked them to the domestic sphere and what today are sort of known as feminized and um, subordinate positions. But when you look back, those did not have that, what I would say, qualitative nature. It was really just, I mean, even when you think about the first division or first sexual division of labor is really the reproductive role, which is a biological fact of life that again, didn't have a certain qualitative nature about it that made women less than Um, and so then when it comes to patriarchy, it, the the, ine- the equal or unequal relationships between men and women are really linked to the way that, again, our needs are met and production is organized. And so I think what would be helpful is just to um, talk a little bit, and I'll just touch on it, is that before the transition from feudalism to capitalism, which, again, was patriarchal um, and land and in, in the major way that this manifested was that land was inherited, um, through the male lineage. Um, but the economy was organized differently. So it was a, a economy of subsistence. And what that means is that the overall labor and, and, producing things was, um, for the use and for maintaining the family and for community survival. Um, and so the peasant serfs, they worked the land, they worked for themselves, and then they gave that also to the Lord and the manor of that land. Um, and the very violent process that happened um, in the transition from feudalism to capitalism completely transforms life and very much ca- changed once again the conditions of women. And this is where we get into what I was saying and really stress is that we need to understand patriarchy within its capitalist form. And capitalism is a, a social, political, economic system that is very much defined by generalized commodity production and, um, of course, as we know, the introduction of wage labor, in which products are no longer just made for use, but therefore exchanged to be bought and sold. And so this, that arrangement then structurally places men and women in different places.
1: Thank you. And I wonder, if, so could you pull that out a little bit more? So you would, in kind of looking at um, how um, patriarchy um, is within capitalism, and, and you mentioned the relationships we have e- with each other, what are those present structures, um, as you see it, that continue this, um, or, or in fact, maybe even exacerbate violence or uphold violence and oppression of women today? What are those kind of structures and systems? <laughs>
3: Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things actually, Chris and I were just reading George Jackson or Chris was reading George Jackson talking about slavery and economic system. And as you were reading, I was thinking about this and how it was connected also to this conversation. Very much, yeah. um, and I think that this is a good example is that Angela Davis talks a lot about how during slavery, uh, And in the plantation economy, men and women were both seen as labor units Um, and they were enslaved in order, the purpose, in order to uh, produce profit for the plantation. Women also um, really held the brunt of sexual violence against them. Um, And that that was also used as a tool to repress them and control them. And and we see that throughout, from, from then till today. And I think it's pertinent also to today's conversation around state violence and police violence. So if we're thinking about the very structures that continue violence against women, we can't forget that one, police and one of the statistics I always see is that close to 40% of police uh, abuse their wives or partners, Um, but also police violence against women, just women being pulled over in cars, um, sexual assaults happening within the prison system, and often this is happening to women of color, is really rampant. Um, And I think that I thought a lot about how when we really look at where and who's doing the violence, state violence against women is a huge culprit. And um, you can look at the eugenics movement. Andrea Smith, who's a Native American scholar, talks a lot about the sterilization of Native women, um, women of color, uh, poor women, poor white women, of course, too. Um, And I think that her work around Indigenous women also shows that you can't just look at, say, sexual violence against Indigenous women without understanding and putting it into the context of colonization and genocide within this in, within this country. Um, I think other systems too, Chris, that you asked and and to go back again, you asked about how the how systems contribute to violence against women, right? Yep. So I think that just again reiterating what I said about capitalism as a set of not just economic relations but social and political is that we then see in all spheres of life how women are in a subordinate position, and you know I would also cl- include activists and revolutionary groups in this too because that I- ideology we all swim in, um, and. One of, the, or a couple, or I think a, a good example of this is um, the welfare system and how the welfare system is this. Women are often very dependent on the welfare system, um, yet it also works as a way to surveil them and punish them, and that the different policies. So if we look at the like systemic legal legislative policies often cause women a lot of harm. And the the thing I'm thinking about is very much related to the work I've done around domestic violence in that um, Clinton's 1996 personal responsibility and work act, um, a lot of those policies are still in place today. And and it's known for the time limits and and sanctions that he put on welfare recipients, much of many recipients, of course, being women. And he really slashed a lot of safety nets. Now, what this does that that we know is that a lot of low-income poor women that are experiencing violence in the home, their um, first contact with the welfare system is because they might be fleeing a violent situation and that they, they need, they have been economically dependent on their partner, their abusive partner, so they go to the welfare system. And... The the system and, and what we have today does not give the help that a woman like that in that position um, could really use. Like they they really need a lot more support. I mean, just look at if you even if you look in in this town, we have a less than one percent vacancy rate, and so just in housing, there's not safe housing for these women. Um, there's not enough money to give them for food um, for anything that they might need to get in a safe position, and so. I feel like that is a good example, how we tend to focus so much on that intimate partner relationship and the abuse that the woman experienced from her partner, but don't see that the very systems that she goes to for help are there also putting her in a really vulnerable position. And oftentimes what I know from this work is that women end up Going back to an abusive partner, or another way I've seen it it, is this what they call dangerous dependencies is that they may turn to um, prostitution um, Mm -hmm. in order to survive. Um, There might be drugs wrapped up in that, and they're put in extremely vulnerable situations. So I think that's a good example of showing how um, the failures of, of these systems that we live within also maintain that violence or, and can even increase the violence.
1: And that certainly connects with uh, mass incarceration, the system of mass incarceration, which Clinton was a huge part of kind of exploding even farther, the the number of yeah. people. So taking away safety nets, um, I, it's, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, for sure.
0: Anna. Um, I had a question, it's something that when you said that, well, for, one thing just to note is that uh, recently a Brattleboro police officer was uh, made to le- leave the force because of violence against his partner or wife. I can't remember which, but so just a, there's a local example of that right now that just happened a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to following up, why does why does capitalism want this? Like what is the if we're to think of capitalism as kind of like a live animal or a beast that that activates in the world what is it trying to achieve or what is the goal is it trying to make women more powerless so they'll be they'll be wage slaves i mean what do you think what is the what is the goal of the of the system or is it just uncontrollable like what what do you think is the, Mm. the aim of the system why why are women put in these continually for as long as capitalism has existed these positions what is the what's the motive there what's the what do you think is underlying all that
3: Uh, I guess, I guess the way that I think about it is in the way that I understand the mechanisms of the capitalist system, which, uh, capitalism doesn't, like, in a way doesn't care about gender. What they, what capitalism cares about is, um, a labor, like I said, like, it's like thinking about slavery, like how men and women were both labor units. Um, but Capitalism, capitalism does in ways depend on dis- divisiveness and um division amongst and making categories of people right. Um, right. and so because in in that way what they can what the system then can do is say well women should be paid less as with children should be paid less mm-hmm. um and actually if you look back at um when if you if you and I think this could be helpful. So if you look back at the beginning of the industrial revolution, and if you look at the the working class, all of the members of the working class were pulled into production. So men, women were pulled in, children were pulled in. And women, like I said, because um, I think partly due to patriarchy being pre-capitalist, so some of that ideology of women as less than were already there and the work that they did was seen as less than. And part of that goes back to the fact that what I mentioned before about women, um, a lot of their the things that they do were in the domestic realm, like soap making, textiles, that sort of thing. When capitalism took over and Pulled that into commodity production um, women's work in the home was no longer it was not what it used to be and so when women are pulled into the factory they're then paid less
2: mm-hmm.
3: and actually an interesting thing is that the textile factories um what i've read is that women and children actually provided <clears throat> so much of that surplus because they were actually the ones doing so much of that work um And so um, connected to that, too, is that when that was happening and um, all like family was being or the working class family was being pulled into the factory. One of the things, an outcome of that, which I think is really interesting, is that there was a moment where people talk about that there could have been um, the organizing and the differences of gender being kind of muted in that they were all like a working force and all under these conditions. But what happened is that the reproduction within the home was being in ways disintegrating and was in ways um, becoming a crisis to capitalism. And one of the outcomes of that was the factory laws in which they raised the wages of men They cut down hours and children were no longer allowed to, um, or part of that was children were no longer allowed to be in the factory. And that actually moved women away from the factory. And then what became what's known as the family wage. um, And women were kind of put into the realm of housework and and domestic work, which of course we know is unpaid work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's real uses to hitting men and women against each other. Um, and having that competition, because you're able to drive down the wage, which is what is needed for the profit accumulation.
0: That's it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I I, I think you, you hit it on the head and helped me clarify my thinking, because that, that must be the ultimate goal, really, if we think about the logic of capitalism is always, mm-hmm. at any cost, sowing division and driving down wages as the, yeah. as, as the ultimate goal.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think I mean, just to add to that too, and I think you touched on this, Anna that at at a point moving from slavery to capitalism, um they needed that reproductive work and all the homework to be unpaid, yeah, uh, as opposed to having somebody else take care of feeding and clothing the whole family. they needed to be to make more profit from that, to have that work be put on um families and have it be unpaid.
3: Right, right. Because it's the it's the taking care of the worker. It's producing the new generation of workers. It's yeah. feeding, clothing them. Uh, I've I've seen it written as the free gift to capital, um, mm. as this you know unpaid, mostly and historically women's work. And you know we see this today. So um, I mean, of course we see this today. But I'm just thinking about COVID. Is that one of the things that we're seeing is that not only are women, it's 70% of women, and I think that's a global number, are in the health, um, make up the health and social sector. They are also the primary caretakers in the home. Um, And so, and because of these gendered roles. And so that's also a a really very precarious, I think, situation for women. I think it's the, these, double burdens. I mean, they with a lot of children at home now, women are doing a lot of the primary caretaking and a lot of the primary um,
0: homeschooling. Hmm. Interesting wow. to note, too, the historical connection that popped in my mind is that we're often taught in, in mainstream U.S. history courses that isn't it wonderful the United States passed labor laws that increased wages and got children out of factories. And And I think the way you laid it out is so is so um, on point because what we don't think about is 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 the impact that that had on half of the population, namely namely the female mm-hmm. population. And I think For that's sure. quite fascinating because it's often taught as a victory. Oh, look, the labor unions achieved this, and and the other side of that coin is never talked about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to uh, double back a little bit or or reference something you mentioned and you shared with us some readings prior to this interview, and one of them was Harsha Walia and she talks about the displacement of indigenous women in Canada into cities and then yeah. the violence that ensues from that. Um, yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that connection and even the, um, as I said, it, it brings to mind Mexico and the maquilas after NAFTA and the, those um, structures and things that, those connections, if you could talk about that for a minute.
3: Yeah. So that video is talking about, because I think that's important too, is the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, yeah. Is that right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And
3: um, one of the things that came out of that was a lot of sex trafficking and violence against women and what became known as man camps, uh, which were a lot of men coming in to work the oil fields. And that she talks about, I mean, there's so many layered things there, right? A lot of that uh, fracking and um, extraction of natural resources is happening on indigenous land is one, right? Um, so it's the destruction of indigenous, continual destruction of indigenous land. And then the displacement of people that pushes them into survival mechanisms, which one of, which for women is often prostitution. Um, the other side of that is also to think about what, And I I know uh, Martha Jimenez says this a lot, who's a woman's scholar and that you had read too, is that she talks about what are the structural conditions of possibility? You know, what is the the violence that is coming from these men and the conditions of their lives and how that is so connected also to this extraction um, of the, of the resource. The other um, example I thought of with that question is around migration and that, looking at the root causes of, of why people, um, are forced to leave places, which is often economic reasons and war. Um, and that they, I am thinking of the example of of a lot of women from say central Latin America, South America that come to this country, um, because they're in dire conditions in their own home country. um, And conditions that, of course, have been facilitated by U.S. imperialism. And they come and work in, say, the fields. Um, They're big in like the agro industry, or there's a lot of both women and men in really dangerous factories, meat factories, meatpacking factories, Um, and that they are so vulnerable also to violence because not only are they in a situation where they might risk Um, say they're undocumented. Um, so there's a huge power situation there. Uh, but they're, they're working for very low wages. Um, those people are really like feeding the country here. So there's all these links that you can make. And then another point around that too, is what people talk about with the global care chain, meaning that women also come up here and take care of other women's children. Mm And often those are middle to upper class white women who are feeling that or have been fed sort of this like feminist, which I would call like a false feminist dream of like working and being a working mom. um, Yet they're hiring um, low paid workers to come and take care of their children. Those mothers are taken away from their own children. Um, And so it's a it's. It's, that's another way I feel like and sad to think about the ways that women are pitted against each other and also the importance of looking at a class lens with women. Um, I think other things around like the, I think it's a good question around the expulsion from land. Uh, I, I mean, I mentioned indigenous women. That's, that's a huge one, right? But um, that I think too about the women on the streets. And I, I mean, that's not necessarily expulsion from land, but that anytime that you are uprooted from either like a living situation or the land, you are exposed and vulnerable to so much violence. Um, and I've been doing a lot of reading on the notion of disaster, the thing about natural disasters or climate change disasters, and how they displace people. Uh, and it causes a lot of stress. People lose their jobs. Um, people lose their housing and because we don't have things in place for people like right now we're looking at what, like, I I don't even know the number, but the evictions that might happen this year. Um, and there's no sort of social safety net that that causes a lot of family, um, disintegration. We know that we know that, uh, People that are there is a, a direct link between low income and people that are on the brink that experience higher levels of domestic violence. And that's not to I think it's important not to say like oh that means like poor men are more violent. No, it's that what are their situations that exasperate that, um, which I think is the important question. So I think those yeah all those connections to like land housing all create conditions that um, can really bring on violence against women.
0: Yeah. And it's all, it's interesting because it's like the setup to begin with. So women are already under capitalism, underwaged and already more vulnerable to the depredations of society. Mm-hmm. And then when crises like this hit, it makes it, it makes them even more doubly vulnerable when they get evicted their face and they already were paying, getting paid less, And so their evictions make them and put them in a more vulnerable spot than than men, for example. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, We had a question for you about this is um, we're drawing to a close where... uh, half an hour for an interview, so we've had a lot of good conversation. Oh. We we do want to know because it's a, it's a show of educators, um, people that teach. And so one of the questions we had, one of the final questions was: um, Given the conditions of the U.S. education system, um, what <laughs> tools do teachers need? Whether that's elementary or high school, maybe even college teachers, what are, what do we need to teach and learn about patriarchy in the classroom that we're not getting or doing right now? And that's a huge question, I realize, but maybe just a couple of things that come to mind um, in that in that realm.
3: Yeah, sure. So. I think that, of course, the first thing is that we as teachers need to explore how patriarchy and misogyny shows up in our own lives. Um, I mean, it is in the air that we breathe, we swim in it, both men, women, people of all gender identities uphold patriarchy. It also destroys all of our lives. Um, and, you know, men are very much harmed from patriarchy. So I think that. First, it's like we need to see what we think about it, because that then, of course, is going to come out in the classroom. Uh, I think that one of the things also that Martha Jimenez says, she talks about the observable observable phenomena, um, which is what we can see. And meaning the domestic violence or difference in wages um, or the ways that you see it in the classroom, you're going to observe a lot of, say, gender bullying or sexist comments, sexual harassment, boys calling each other faggot. Um, I don't know if I can say that on the air. Uh, So and I want to stress here, actually, is that the observable needs to be addressed So it's important to have um, this larger political-economic understanding of patriarchy, Uh, but we need to not forget to address also what's happening right in front of our faces, that we can make the conditions of women's lives, our students' lives, better while we still stay committed to that longer struggle. Um, And I think that it's we need to hold all of that. While we understand that women's emancipation can't rest on just the destruction of patriarchy, um, we do need to address patriarchy. And that we do need to um, see all the ways that it comes out in the classroom. Because just in the sense that we should not be treating each other like this, and that we need to see then. Okay, what then is our common struggle as humans together in this? And I think that it's um, it's difficult. Like it can be difficult at times. And I think for women that have experienced violence, um, and for you know on the daily that girls are taught to hate themselves, that we're all really sort of tasked with going beyond our specific oppression and being able to like forge forward. But it's, it has to be a nuanced thing where um, it's a two, what I think of sort of like as, as a two tiered struggle.
1: Um, thank you so much. And I want to see if, if there's anything else that you wanted to share with us. Um, I think you've, There's so many other possibilities for discussion and I think hopefully we'll have multiple shows that um, delve with these topics, but if there's any other things that you wanted to share um, that we hadn't touched on that you felt were important.
3: I'm just looking. I feel like you asked some really good questions here. (laughs) I mean, there's always more to say, right? Yeah. Um, I think I just want to stress that like, it's, The way we understand violence against women and the way that we understand patriarchy is, it it is really important because it does lead us to, um, or it forces us to like make those links and those larger links that absolutely need to be made um, in order to have all of us living lives that are free from, from violence. And I think, um, that is also key and that is what can hopefully build that solidarity, um, between people.
1: Again, thank you so much. Um, Henry, any last thoughts or questions?
0: No, thanks Anna so much for, um, for doing that. Yeah, Would for you sure. Yep.
3: Thank, thank, you. thank you. I'm excited to listen to all the songs you pick. <laughs> And the rest.
0: So that was a great interview with Anna. Um, thanks. We thank her for joining us and um, appreciate her insight into all the different subjects we touched upon. And so we're going to take a quick song break. This is a song by Leslie Gore. And this, the name of the song is called You Don't Own Me.
1: That was Leslie Gore with You Don't Own Me, and this is WVEW-LP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We're also streaming live online at wvew.org. And this is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, streaming at noon on Sundays, and I think also Mondays and Thursdays. I'm not sure of the exact times, but we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. Um, you can catch us on Facebook and Twitter, um, and the views and opinions of this show are of the participants of the show and not necessarily of the radio station. So great. Uh, today we have been talking about um, the relationship between capitalism, patriarchy, and violence. We just had an excellent interview with Anna Mullaney and um, Henry, you want to lead sure, us into I-
0: I just wanted to touch on that song. It's kind of a cheesy 60s song, this Leslie Gore song, but it's interesting because uh, she's talking about, in some ways, I mean, she might not have done this analysis, what you're saying, but the idea of you don't own me, ownership as a capitalist idea, and an idea of patriarchy. So when I chose that song, I realized it's a bit cheesy, but just that intersection of, um, of ownership um, and a, a female saying to a male, you know, Basically, get your hands off me. You don't. You don't know me, so back off. And um, the idea of ownership. But anyway, I want to switch a little bit because before we delve into the last part of the show, which will be an analysis or a discussion between us about what teachers can do to discuss patriarchy and and capitalism and violence. I, I do know that you you think highly of uh, Silvia Federici and her book *Caliban and the Witch* as um, one of the kind of the leading intellectual in in the exploration of capitalism and patriarchy. And I I didn't know if you wanted to, Chris, say a few words about her in case some of our listeners may want to do some more of their own research.
1: Yeah. And I think she's one of many in the field, but she's certainly uh, just one of her books, Caliban and and the Witch, but many others. And she uses a feminist examination of this transition um, to capitalism centering. And she talks about, and I thought this was really interesting, and this wasn't part of how I viewed it when I was growing up, but she talks about the witch hunts as a way to deepen um, our history of class struggle in this country and and the violence that accompanied that Um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of women around the world that were murdered um, during this time. And in her book, Caliban and the Witch, um, um, both Caliban being a character from Shakespeare's, the tempest um, that represent these archetypes um, that are actually the enemies of the kind of philosophy and ideas of capitalism, the Caliban from from Shakespeare representing this anti-colonial rebel, um, not civilized. Um, He he also, in her words, um, represents a symbol for the proletariat or the worker of the world, Um, and as a way to resist this logic of capitalism. And she also then talks about the witch representing the embodiment of the world of the female um, subjects that capitalism had to destroy um, this female power and symbols to be able to expand like it did. And so the witch representing the heretic, also a healer, a disobedient wife a woman who dared to live alone <coughs> the, in um, literature, woman who poisoned the master's food and in, inspires slaves to revolt. And so she Lays out in her book kind of the both um, um, history and literature, but also how it connects to the evolution of capitalism in the world. And she poses this question, which um, this is, and Federici writes, Why, after 500 years of capital's rule at the beginning of the third millennium, are workers on a mass scale defined as paupers, witches, and outlaws? How are land expropriation and mass pauperization related to the continuing attack on women? And what do we learn about capitalist development past and present once we examine it through the vantage point of a feminist perspective? And so lots of people kind of try to use the class analysis of, of <clears throat> the world. And she's also asking us to layer within that uh, feminist perspective as we look through this class. And so the book again, goes on to, um, talk about the need for in the capitalist um, ideology for the execution of hundreds of thousands of, quote, witches at the beginning of this, again, quote, modern era and how it very much coincides and dovetails with this rise of capitalism as a war against women.
0: Um, Yeah. So, yeah. And I I think um, just to kind of wrap it up, because we only have a minute or two left, Chris, I wanted to touch upon how you think as teachers we can bring this into our curriculum. How can we help our students critically analyze the world and the assumptions that brought us to this point? Um, How can we model some of these changes for our students? Um, One thing that I think of that that really stuck with me, I did the SPARK um, teacher training program, which is – Based in Brattleboro, and it's a it's a um a masters and a certification program for teachers um in the area, and it's wonderful. And one of the things I learned was that in in my studies was that even when they analyze teachers for sexist behavior, for example, in the classroom, they might say to them, for example, hey, we're examining you to see how you respond to your male and female students. Um, and, of course, in the modern era, um, students who don't identify with either of those kind of gendered roles. But yeah. even when they, when they do that, they, they find that teachers still, male or female, call them males more often than females. Um, so that's just one way. It's a little tweak that I, when I'm doing – when I have student teachers with me, I say, always pay attention to who you're calling. Even those small micro decisions can make a difference in power relations in the classroom.
1: And I, and I think that um, – and a, another piece of this is what does our curriculum look like? Right. And who do we emphasize in our curriculum and who do we not and and um, this lens that Federici and others ask us to um, look at historically through that. And we're both history teachers. Um, I also went through the iteration of the Spark teacher training program at Keene State. um, Ask us to do that, to to examine our curriculum and what we what we put into this. And so I think that that's a big part of um, what I try to do but another part of this, and this I think could apply to both race and gender and many other things is, um, what am I, um, listening to in terms of what my students say? And so I've had lots of, um, students come to me and talk about, um, mental health issues and that, <clears throat> that it's being brushed off as a, um, uh, their problem as opposed to what the world is imposing on them. And in particular. Um, I had a group of female students that were talking about this in terms of, um, the black lives matter movement and that their, their issues and, um, concerns around mental health are not because of a deficiency in them, but a reaction to what's happening to them in the world, both as women and as women of color. And so not only hearing that, but acting upon that and with that and with that knowledge.
0: Yeah. And being for, for those students who are, um, female or, um, students of color who are, um, experiencing these oppressive systems. How can we as teachers act as allies and, and, uh- Teach and learn together in ways that are not just duplicating uh, the patriarchy, and ways that are that are critically examining the world we live in. Uh, be that the violence from from males to females, um, be that the destruction of capitalism um, in terms of the destruction it's wrought. Um, for example, I think of the fact that we're studying the Vietnam War in history classes. What does that mean in terms of uh, patriarchy and capitalism? Um, how does that intersect with those those types of uh, topics? So, uh, lots of things to chew on there.
1: Yeah. And I really, again, a, a great shout out and thanks to Anna Malani for her, um, sharing her knowledge with us today. And Henry, do you want to introduce the, uh, next show and our closing song?
0: Sure. That's great. So next week, um, we'll be discussing on Indigo Radio, uh, returning to school during a pandemic, which should be a real barn burner. How do you return to school, um, in person during an active pandemic? And so that'll be, I think, a compelling, um, show, which will be next Sunday. Thanks for being with us today and we'll see you next week.